Romans 11, 25 through 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, George. Well, church, go ahead and take a seat, and let's... Turn in our Bibles to the passage that George just read, Romans chapter 11, picking up in our series in Romans. Welcome those of you who are tuning in right now. Let me uh, welcome you as well to our service and invite you to take your Bible and turn to Romans 11. We'll be finishing up chapter 11 today. And, you know, as we get started this morning and take a look, a deep dive into doctrine, I want to start this morning with a quote about doctrine. When I, when I think about Romans 1 through 11, really, this, this entire section that we've looked at for the last two years, uh, this is the greatest doctrinal treatise ever written. And we could spend the rest of our lives studying and trying to grapple with and understand what exactly Paul is saying here. Romans 9 through 11 as well, this section that we've looked at for the last several months, is a deep dive into doctrinal truth, doctrine regarding Israelites and Jews and the end times and God's plan for the church and all of this. And I think it's helpful to just put the right perspective on doctrine as we study it this morning. And to help you with that, I want to quote the famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin, Lloyd, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about doctrine. He said, I spend half of my time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half telling them that doctrine is not enough. Spend half my time telling them, you need more doctrine. The other half, you need more. It's not enough. What did he mean by that? It's not enough. Well, I, I think what he means is that doctrine is super, super important. Okay, don't, don't get me wrong. I think doctrine is super, super important, but it's not the end of our study. The end of our study, well, I mean, let's talk about Romans for 
First of all, the end of our doctrine should be faith in Christ. If you got all this doctrine and you don't have faith in Christ, you missed it. Something's not calculating there for you. But Paul shows us something else here that's greatest theological treatise ever written, Romans 1 through 11. Paul doesn't end Romans 1 through 11 with doctrine. Doctrine inevitably shifts to doxology. Theology inevitably leads to worship of our great God. If doctrine doesn't lead to worship, you're not doing it right. You're missing something. How does Paul end this great treatise on theology in Romans 1 through 11? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let me say it this way, Harvest Decatur. Doctrine must climax in doxology. Theology inevitably leads to the worship of our great God. And by the way, as we're studying doctrine, as we're thinking about doctrine, there are aspects of God's character, God's nature, God's work in our world that we won't completely understand ever, ever Okay, I hate to shock you with that, but it's true. Your, your finite mind can't get it all. You can try. C.S. Lewis tells this great story in his book, Miracles, about a shellfish. So just imagine with me this morning a shellfish. And a shellfish, this particular shellfish, saw man for the first time and was overawed by man. Wow! Look at that creature. And so the shellfish goes back to his other shellfish friends and he tries to describe man. And, and he, he tells the other shellfish, he doesn't live in the water, he lives on land. Wow, what? That's crazy. And he doesn't have a shell either to keep his body together. What? That's crazy. How is that even possible? And, and so the description from the shellfish of man is, is this kind of amorphous jelly that has no shell existing nowhere in particular because he's not attached to a rock and he never takes nourishment because there's no water to drift food towards him the the shellfish are just overwhelmed by the glory of man and like wow and they get a few things wrong because they can't quite grasp with their little shellfish minds the glory of man well Lewis uses that little analogy to illustrate our understanding of God. It's limited. Do you know who we are in Lewis's illustration? We are the shellfish. Isn't that encouraging, you little shellfish friends of mine? Are you? We are the shellfish trying our best to understand God, and it's incomplete. It's, it's limited. We'll never quite grasp it completely. So you might say, well, what do we do, Pastor Tony? How do... How do we respond to this God that we barely know, even with the best efforts of our minds? Here's what you do. Here's where you got to get eventually. You worship him. You fall on your face before him and you say, I don't, I don't know enough to know what I don't know about you, God. But what I do know is awesome. And I'm going to worship you. We've got to get to that place. And Paul helps us get there here at the end of Romans 11. He gives us some doctrine, and we're going to talk about doctrine this morning, okay? Doctrine of last things, the doctrine of the the nation of Israel and God's plan for them in last times. I mean, Paul talks about it, he explains it here, but before we're done, we're going to get to doxology because that's where Paul gets us. Doctrine inevitably leads to 
doxology. I want to give you this morning, Harvest Decatur, three statements about Israel's future salvation from Romans 11, 25 through 36. And the first thing that Paul wants to convey to us in terms of doctrine is that there is a future hope for recalcitrant Israel. There's a future hope for them. There is a future mass conversion of Jews that is prophesied in Scripture and anticipated by, by Paul. So go ahead and write this down as number one in your notes. Three things this morning, Harvest Decatur. Three statements about Israel's future salvation in Romans 11. First of all, Israel's future salvation is confirmed in Scripture. It's confirmed in Scripture. And not just Romans 11. Paul's going to quote from Isaiah to substantiate his claim that God's not done with Israel. God has a future plan for Israel that involves this mass conversion. So Paul says this in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, I could preach a whole sermon on that statement right there. Because that is so good, what Paul says here. I don't want you to be ignorant, and I don't want you to be cocky. That's what he's saying here. I don't want you to be unaware about what God is doing, and I don't want you to be wise in your own sight. Paul wants us to be enlightened about the truth of this mystery, this great un unveiling of what God's going to do in the future. In fact, in the Greek, more literally here, it is, I do not want you to be ignorant. Not just I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to not know the mystery. This mystery, brothers, and the brothers here, I see as a reference to the church in Rome, to us Gentiles primarily. I don't want you to be ignorant, Gentile brothers, about the Jews, and I don't want you to be cocky or arrogant either. So put those things together, and there's wisdom there in that. Actually, this derives this statement from Proverbs 3, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be ignorant. What does Paul want us to not be ignorant about? Well, the mystery. Look at verse 25. I do not want you to be unaware, ignorant of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There is a mystery concerning God's plan of salvation for the Jews. There is something that's yet to be revealed in salvation history. Remember the tree from earlier, the olive tree? We looked at that a couple weeks ago. We Gentiles, we wild olive shoots have been grafted onto a tree. We have been brought into a salvation plan that involves Israel. And there will come a time, says Paul, even earlier in verse 12, there will come a time of future full inclusion of the Jewish nation, of ethnic Jews. And Paul says here, picking up on that theme again in verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul says here that there will be a coming deliverance of Israel, the salvation prophesied about them in the Old Testament. It still hasn't happened yet. Hadn't happened in the time of Paul. It still hasn't happened in all our day. We still anticipate this in our day. Paul quotes here from the prophet Isaiah chapter 59 
And by the way, just a little bit of review here. This is the same Isaiah that said that salvation would come to Gentiles. That same Isaiah. The same Isaiah that said the Gentiles, like you and me, would enjoy the promises of Abraham. Now is saying, the same Isaiah says that there will be a, a, a mass conversion of Jewish people. At the end of times, there's a, there's a mystery that still remains there. The same Isaiah that prophesied mass conversion of Gentiles is prophesying now mass conversion of Jews. That hasn't happened yet. They will be saved. Deliverance will come to them from Zion, Jerusalem. Now, when will this happen? You might ask. Pastor Tony, it's been 2,000 years since Christ came. When's this going to happen? Well, I believe that this will take place in what's called the tribulation period after the church is removed from the world and God directs his attention once again to Israel. I see evidence of this in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation. I see pointers to this in the book of 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Ezekiel, even Jesus' own words in the Olivet Discourse, Discourse, Matthew 25, Matthew 24, 25. And when I put all of those scriptures together, in, in what's called an eschatology, a theology of last things. I see this mystery revealed. We're in this future time called the tribulation. The church will be removed. God will direct his attention to the nation of Israel, and there will be great oppression of the Jewish people by a one-world government ruled by the Antichrist. The Lord will raise up an army of Jewish evangelists the 144,000 of the book of Revelation, chapter 7, chapter 14. And after the end of a, an intensive seven-year period of tribulation and the large-scale conversion of a massive number of Jews, Christ will return to the earth and set up his thousand-year reign from Mount Zion, which we call the Millennial Kingdom. Revelation 19, Revelation 20. I am, just for the record, on this subject, premillennial. I hold to the premillennial view of Christ's coming. We had an elders meeting a while back, and one of our elders, um, who will remain nameless, he kind of casually referred to me as a millennial. And I said, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, I was born in 1978. I am not a millennial. I'm a Gen Xer. Thank you very much. I don't know if that's better, but I'm a Gen Xer. I am not a millennial. I'm pre-millennial, okay? In both my age and my eschatology. Okay? Everybody with me? Do I have your attention? I'm pre-millennial, but I'm also pre-trib. Now, different people put this all together, our understanding of when... Christ will come back and what's the nature of the church at that time and what's going to happen with Israel at that time. And whether you're pre-trib or not, there is, I think, a general consensus among, among evangelicals, the good ones anyway, that there will be a future mass conversion of Israelites. I don't know how to understand Romans chapter 11 any other way. When Jews get saved at the end of human history in this tribulation period, they, it'll be in mass. It'll be in large numbers. It'll be in the midst of persecution, I believe. And let me be clear about this, too, because there's some confusion about this. Uh, even in the pre-trib, pre-mill world, 
Some people will ask, you know, okay, well, the Jewish people, there'll be a mass conversion. Is it like they'll embrace their Judaism? They'll become more Jewish. There'll be like another way of salvation for them that's different from the Christians. Can I be absolutely clear about this? There is no salvation for Jews or Gentiles apart from Christ Jesus. When, when Paul's talking here about this mass conversion of Jews at, at some future date, He's not talking about they're going to they're going to be more Jewish. They're going to embrace their Judaism, their Judaism. No, 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 no. They're going to embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah like you and I have embraced Jesus Christ as the Messiah. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And what Paul speaks of here, what's prophesied even in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah is that The deliverer will come and a massive number of Jews will get saved. And here's how I know this is a future tense reality. Here's how I know that this is something that's going to happen at the end of days. Look at verse 26 with me. These verbs are in the future tense in Greek. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The verbs in that Isaiah quotation are future tense too. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. It's future tense from Isaiah's perspective, 700 years before Christ. It's future tense from Paul's perspective, 2,000 years ago. It's still future tense from our perspective. This still hadn't happened yet. We still await this. And by the way, just a little nota bene here whenever we look at prophetic literature in the Old Testament, you know, in the prophets, as you read Isaiah, as you read Ezekiel, as you read Daniel, as you read other prophets, there is both foretelling and forthtelling. Some of it is prophetic, looking toward the future, foretelling the future. Some of it's just forthtelling, just telling them what's already happened, telling them about what God told them in the book of Deuteronomy. It's just, it's just preaching. It's, you know, the prophets are just preaching. God told you to do this, so do this. Some of it, a smaller part of it, is actually foretelling the future, looking to the future. And that foretelling of the future, some of those things have to do with the first advent, the first coming of Christ. Some of those things hadn't happened yet. And we still await Isaiah's prophecies fulfilled. Some of them. Some of them took place at first advent, Christ's coming. His first coming, some of them still await a future fulfillment. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Isaiah said something that hasn't happened in the days of Paul, still hasn't happened in our day, this mass conversion of Jewish people. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Israel's future salvation is confirmed confirmed in the scripture. It's also evidence of God's great mercy. Let's follow Paul's argument here. Paul says in verse 28, As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, the Jews. This is Paul talking to us Gentiles about the Jews. They might be enemies as regards the gospel. The Jews were certainly Paul's enemy in his day. They tried to kill Paul just about everywhere he went in the book of Acts. It's actually a moment in the book of Acts. I don't think I've mentioned this, not in Romans anyway. There's a moment in the book of Acts where 40 men made a, a, a covenant, they swore on oath to one another that they would neither eat nor drink until Paul was dead. Acts 23, that's how much they hated Paul. That's how much they hated the gospel. They were enemies of Paul as regards the gospel. And the same may be true in our day where a 
predominant number of Jews reject the Christian gospel, but Paul says, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, meaning God has a future plan for Israel that is anchored to God's promises to the Jewish forefathers in the Old Testament. So don't despise the Jewish people as enemies, Gentiles. Instead, realize that they are future recipients of God's mercy as a result of his promise. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. In other words, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. The rejection of the gospel by the Jews led to salvation for us Gentiles. Paul was rejected in the synagogue, so he went to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles got saved. The Jews persecuted Jesus' disciple, disciples in Jerusalem, and so they were thrust out of the city. Therefore, they started witnessing to non-Jews too, and Gentiles, like you and me, are the beneficiaries of Jewish disobedience and rejection of the gospel. For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, the Jews' disobedience, verse 31, so they, the Jews, too, have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Whoo! What's Paul talking about there? There's a lot to that argument. He's saying three things. Let me simplify it for you, okay? Three things. The disobedience of the Jews led to mercy for the Gentiles. The mercy of the Gentiles will lead to jealousy among the Jews and the Jewish longing for mercy. Here's the key point, the third point. The, the Jewish longing for the mercy shown to Gentiles will someday lead to mercy for Jews. Paul says that the Jews will someday see faith in Christ among the Gentiles and they'll long for that and then they will come to Christ and they will receive the gift of salvation, they will receive their Messiah at some future point. This is God's pattern for salvation. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So, summary here. Israel's future salvation is evidence of God's great mercy. Israel's future salvation is confirmed in the scriptures and it's evidence of God's great mercy. That's what Paul is saying. And this goes without saying, but let me just say it anyway. It's not only Israel's future salvation that is evidence of God's mercy. My salvation, this pagan Gentile right here, I am evidence of God's mercy the salvation that he showed me, you likewise, the mercy that God has shown you, your repentance, your faith, that is an act of grace. That is God's goodness in your life. You were disobedient before you came to Christ and God's mercy was shown in your life. That same thing that we experience as Gentiles, Paul says, in, in a cosmic way, in a grander way, Jews will experience that in mass in future days. And, and I think that should be clear after reading Romans 1 through 11. If there's anything we've learned in Romans 1 through 11, it's that we are wholly unholy before a righteous God. Haven't we now? Is there anybody this morning who wants to say, you know, Pastor Tony, I think I'll go at it my own. I don't really need God's mercy. I'll just go with my own righteous record before the Lord. Anybody want to do that? If you feel inclined to do that, 
You haven't paid attention for the last two years as we preach through Romans. If we've learned anything in Romans, it's that we are recipients of God's grace undeservingly because of our sin. I heard a pastor say this last week, and it was perfectly put. The fact that you got up this morning and took a breath of non-hell-based air is grace. That is grace. And one of the essential aspects of the gospel is recognizing your own need for mercy. The fact that God pointed out your sinfulness and your disobedience, that's an act of mercy itself, that he showed you that. Otherwise, you'd be walking around thinking, you're, you're, at least I'm better than that person over there. I'm not too bad. I'm not a bad person. You read Romans and you're like, yeah, I am. What Paul's saying here is that what God has done in your life and my life, showing us mercy, showing our disobedience and then showing us mercy, God's going to do that on a cosmic scale at some future time with ethnic Jews. They're going to be shown their disobedience, their rebellion. They're going to repent of it. They're going to receive God's mercy. They're going to receive their Messiah, Jesus Christ, and it's going to be glorious. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Some of you might read that, verse 32, and you you might say, that's confusing, Pastor Tony. Why, Why did God do it that way? You know, if I was God, I wouldn't have done that. I would just show people mercy. You know, no need to consign them to disobedience and show them their disobedience. Well, if you just showed everyone mercy without exposing their disobedience, no one would be aware of their need for mercy. You might say, why does, why does God show Jews in the future their disobedience and bring them to his mercy why, why is God planning that for the future? Why didn't he do that in Paul's day with all these Jews that were trying to kill him? Why didn't God do it then? Why doesn't God do it right now? There's Jews, four million Jews that live in Israel. Why doesn't he do it right now? Why doesn't he do it right now with the Jew who lives on my block, Pastor Tony? I don't know. I don't know. I pray for the people on my block, and, ju- and not just the Jews. I want to see God show mercy to everybody the way he's shown mercy to me. And I don't know why he's waiting. Who can know the mind of God, and who has been his counselor? You know, as we get to the end of Romans 11, so we've we got this doctrine, doctrine, right? And then all of a sudden, there's this epic explosion of praise, starting in verse 33. And, you know, I think this is Paul's way of saying, I don't understand all that God is doing. Here's the best sense I can make of it. I've written 11 chapters for you people. Here's all my theology. I'm done. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You know, we all have to get there eventually, don't we? 
Verse 33, we all have to get there eventually. God is sovereign, man is responsible. I put my faith in Christ and I got saved, but God chose me before the foundations of the world. God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, but God is also one. Jesus is fully man, but he's also fully God. Jesus created the universe and created mankind, but Jesus, Jesus was also incarnated into our world as a man to die for our sins. God wrote the scriptures and he used men to do it, to help convey this revelation to us. God preserved his scriptures and presented these truths to me so that I might believe and receive Christ as my savior, but that was already predestined before time even began. Boom! I I don't know how to make sense of that. You know how I make sense of that? Bringing that all together. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. We all have to get there eventually. Now you know why Paul explodes in praise after 11 chapters of theology. Paul's done the best he can. He's done the best by the power of the Holy Spirit, inspiring him to write this scripture. And eventually he gets to a place where theology has to shift to doxology. And he just explodes in praise. No more explanation. It's time for exaltation. Look at verse 33 with me. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Not me. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Write this down as number three in your notes. Israel's future salvation is motivation for our worship. It's motivation for our worship. John MacArthur says about these verses, verses 33 through 36. You can read this on the screen. Like a mountain climber who has reached the summit of Mount Everest, the Apostle Paul can only stand awestruck at God's beauty and majesty unable to further explain an infinite and holy God to finite and sinful men. He can only acknowledge that God's judgments are unsearchable and his ways are unfathomable. Pastor Tony, I don't understand election and human responsibility. I don't understand how those things come together. I don't either. Not completely. Can I just tell you, I've spent hours and hours and hours and hours of my life trying to make sense of those things, trying to put them together. You know where I've ended up? Can I tell you? Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That's where I've ended up. Pastor Tony, I don't understand Romans 9 through 11. I don't understand God's plan for Israel at the end of the age. 
I don't understand it either, not completely. I've done the best that I can to put together the scriptures as I see them and how God is, is bringing about the end of history, the end of human history. I'm still not 100% sure how it's all going to shake out in the end. You know where I've ended up with the matter? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Some of you might say, well, Pastor Tony, if, if you keep ending up in that place, why do you study so much? Why don't you just skip to verse 33? Why are you spending so much time studying it if you're unsure at the end of it all? Here's why. Can I tell you why I do it? Because it's fun. Because I love it. Because yes, God is unsearchable completely. Yes, he's inscrutable, but it's so fun to try. And he loves it when his little shellfish try. I heard this last week. John Calvin, his favorite verse in the Bible. Do y'all know this? What's, what's John Calvin's favorite verse? It's Deuteronomy 29, 29. John Calvin, this great learned man who wrote pages and pages of commentary on Scripture, wrote the, probably the most important book on systematic theology, Institutes of the Christian Religion. His favorite verse in the Bible is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Secret things belong to the Lord. John Calvin, smart guy. You're not going to get to all of it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Do you all remember what God told Job in the book of Job? Remember the question he asked, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job 38. I wonder sometimes if God has a similar statement with our best attempts at theology and philosophy. Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? This is why I feel so strongly that our doctrine must eventually end up in doxology because we're going to end up in a place where we're, we don't understand or grasp completely what God is doing. Paul says in verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Not me. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. You might say, well, if I was God, then I would do this. No, 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 no. Don't embarrass yourself by saying that. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. No, you won't. You will fall on your face before him. There will be no giving God a piece of your mind. We will, our eyes will be open to things that we didn't know. And, and our eyes will be open to just how glorious God is and how we didn't see that fully when we were here. I heard this last week about the death of the longtime host of the Inside the Actors studio. 
a man named James Lipton. That's his picture. I used to watch this show. I really enjoyed it. It was interesting. And this guy Lipton, he was a writer. He was an actor himself. And he would interview all these A-list actors and talk to them about their craft. And it was interesting. And, you know, actors, actors are kind of weird people. So it's kind of a fun show to watch. I heard this last week. He passed away. And one... One interview, interviewer asked him once what he wanted God to say to him when he met him at his death. What do you want God to say to you, James Lipton, after you enter into eternity at your death? And Lipton said, I want God to say, you see, Jim, you were wrong. I do exist. But you may come in anyway, even though you never believed in me, even though you're an atheist. What foolish, wishful thinking. I hope you're not planning on that when you see the Lord. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Not me. God is no man's debtor. God doesn't owe us anything. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever. Amen. To him be glory forever. Amen. I heard Paul Tripp say this last week that we as humans were glory junkies. We keep wanting to heap glory on ourselves. Give me some glory. And then we give glory to these individuals these human beings who aren't worthy of that glory celebrities and athletes and politicians to him be glory forever to him be glory forever God is the source and the creator of everything all glory is rightly directed to him and he is worthy of all of our praise we're going to end our service this morning by taking communion and by worshiping the Lord I want our theology to climax in doxology. But before we do that, let me just give you one more reason to worship the great God that we serve. I read this last week that there uh, are astronomers in Australia who have successfully mapped out 83% of the visible universe. Don't ask me how they did this. I don't know. What they did is they used a powerful radio telescope set up in the outback and they charted three million galaxies in our universe. And a million of those galaxies, no one even knew existed before that, or at least charted them. And if you've ever done the math or seen the math on just one galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy, the expanse of it, how huge it is, how infinitesimal we are compared to it. And you start to think, okay, that's one galaxy of three million galaxies. It just kind of boggles the mind. And, you know, I, I've heard, I'm not a scientist, I'm not an astronomer, but I've heard from different people that the number of galaxies we don't even know. 
Some people say millions, some people say billions. I've heard estimates of 350 billion and more galaxies. I mean, at some point, it's like millions, billions, does it, I mean, does it really matter? It's, just, it's, it's huger than we could ever know. And then people tell me, scientists, that it's still expanding. Oh, you just blew my mind again. What am I supposed to do with that? I don't even know how big it is now, and now you're telling me it's getting bigger. And it's just a little reminder to us of how small we are and how big our God is. And all of this, thinking through this, this last week, it brought to mind something I read in Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love, a few years ago. I want to close with it. Chan writes this. He says, it's wild to think that most of these galaxies that have been discovered, they've only been discovered in the past few years, thanks to the Hubble telescope. Listen to this. They've been in the universe for thousands of years without humans even knowing about them. And Fran asks, why would God create more than 350 billion galaxies? And this is a conservative estimate. that generations of people have never seen or even known existed. Do you think maybe it was to make us say, wow, God is unfathomable unfathomably big or perhaps God wants us to see these pictures see these galaxies so that our response would be who do I think I am I am unfathomably small compared to this universe I'll tell you what we are this is my final thought we are shellfish (laughs) trying to figure out mankind And yet, think about this. This God who is inscrutable came to this little planet, took on this flesh, lived among us, suffered among us, was crucified by us, And he died for our sins. He loves these little shellfish. He loves these wild olive shoots that we are. And the natural olive branches. To him be all the glory. Amen.